All right. Um, so if you guys have your Bibles, again, uh, we are back in 1 Corinthians. Um, so I invite you guys again to, to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 5. Um, and as you guys are turning there, just by way of introduction, uh, we have been going through 1 Corinthians. If you, this is your first time here, uh, welcome. My name is Eric. Um, I'm the pastor. Um, and um, for the past month and a half or so, maybe two months now, uh, we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and uh, we are probably slated to finish 1 Corinthians. Who are my seniors here? You will, you will not finish. Like, we're not going to finish 1 Corinthians. Like, I'm to be honest here, okay? So uh, if you want to continue to tune in, uh, we're recording our messages online, and so you can continue to, you know, be with us over the internet. Um, but uh, we've been in 1 Corinthians, and this is what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. He says, verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words or of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, What is your best sales pitch? What is your best sales pitch? Uh, If you were a marketer, what kind of product are you confident that you can market and sell? Uh, What can you sell really well? And so this was a question that the, the office staff had asked uh, a couple weeks ago, and the office staff loves asking these kind of questions. Um, and, and Pastor David had answered that he could probably get other people hooked on uh, Dungeons & Dragons. And if you guys don't know what Dungeons & Dragons is, it's okay because it's pretty geeky. Um, but and, and so when, he was, when, when David was talking about how he can get people hooked on it, and I was like, why would anyone get hooked on this? Like, It's like the most boring thing. Uh, but Dave started showing us a video of Vin Diesel playing. And I was like, okay, I can see how people, you know, can get, like, you know, hooked on this and, uh, and spend their entire Saturday evenings fighting imaginary goblins. Um, and, and I kid you not, as, as Dave had hyped it up uh, later that evening, okay, later that evening, I spent an hour of my evening uh, watching six people role-playing and talking about curses and murky swamps. And, and by the end of the sequence, I was literally on the edge of my seat. And so if Dave could be paid for the amount of time that I spent watching Dungeons & Dragons, uh, he would probably be, in some ways, uh, richer than he already is. And, and, and so uh, when it came to me, um, I, had, I had answered that I could probably sell people nothing uh, because I'm terrible at hyping people up, okay? Uh, but actually, what's kind of ironic uh, is that I was actually a salesman uh, in my freshman year of college, believe it or not. Um, I used to sell Cutco knives, and I don't know if you guys know what Cutco is. Um, yes, it's a pyramid scheme. I, there, I said it on internet. Um, but if you don't know what Cutco knives are, uh, they are kitchen knives, and I'm pretty sure at least one family represented in this room probably owns a pair or two. Um, but as a salesperson... Um, there, there was always the temptation uh, to hype the product up so people would buy it. Uh, and, and much to my delight, uh, Cutco was actually the one product uh, where I didn't have to pe- where I didn't have to really convince people on. Um, and 
and by the way, Cutco didn't like pay me to say this, um, but I would, you know, as a, as a salesperson, I would, I would do these knife demonstrations for customers who are pretty much all my relatives and maybe like some of my friends, my, my rich friends is, you know, older brothers. Um, but the focal point wasn't on the demonstrator, uh, but the knives themselves. Like there was one uh, demonstration where I used a serrated, serrated knife to cut um, a three inch piece of rope with ease. Um, in another demonstration, I had to use a pair of kitchen shears to cut a penny in half, uh, both with ease. And the point of these demonstrations was to simply point customers to the product, then the presenter. And of course, you know, you still need the, you know, the presenter or the demonstrator to make the demonstrations. But the point that I'm trying to, trying to draw our attention to is the temptation for us to idolize form over substance. Form over substance. The danger for any salesperson is that the salesperson draws way more attention than the product itself. The danger for any hype man or hype woman is that they draw way more attention than the thing being hyped. The danger for any dynamic speaker or preacher or gifted communicator is to draw more attention to himself than Jesus himself. And this is what we see in our passage this evening. And I almost kind of sound like a broken record now. Uh, but if you'll remember for the past four messages or so, Paul began his response to the Corinthians by addressing the problem that was plaguing the church the most, namely divisions occurring in the church. And just to give you guys kind of a roadmap, Paul will actually continue to address the problem of divisions all the way until the fourth chapter. So if Paul addresses the, the problem of divisions in the church for four chapters, and 1 Corinthians is 16 chapters, this means that Paul will spend approximately 25% of 1 Corinthians addressing divisions alone. Which tells us that divisions were a huge problem in the Corinthian church. And the reason why these divisions were so problematic was because of how antithetical the divisions were to the cross of Jesus Christ. That the Corinthians were in danger of repudiating the very cross that saved them. So in uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, uh, the passage just a couple weeks ago, we found out that the Corinthians had misunderstood expectations of the cross. And so Paul's first line of reasoning was to show them the foolishness of the cross. The question that he had asked was, how can you choose who to hang out with on the basis of status, if you have been saved by, by the world standards, a foolish cross. In last week's passage, we, dis- we discovered that the Corinthians had also overestimated themselves into thinking that they were somebodies when they were really nobodies. So Paul's second line of reasoning was to show them the foolishness of the people that the cross saves. How can you choose who to hang out with on the basis of status if almost none of you have status in the eyes of the world? And finally, in our passage tonight, Paul closes out the section with a third strand of reasoning. The foolishness of the messengers of the cross. And the question that Paul will be asking of the Corinthians and the question that he will be asking of us is, how can you choose who to hang out with on the basis of status if what saved you is not the magnetism of people, but the gravity of the cross? That is what Paul is going to be 
addressing and asking us this very evening. And it's here that the Apostle Paul once again exposes our hearts and challenges our value systems. For, for any charismatic or magnetic speaker, there is always the temptation to worship the messenger rather than the message. For any flashy or cool Christian, there is always, there always runs a temptation to follow the Christian rather than to follow the Christ. For any intelligent, gifted, charming, or attractive Christian, there is always the temptation to worship the follower of Jesus rather than Jesus himself. But when we do that, this is exactly how and why the Christian community, why this high school group falls apart. When it focuses on stuff that that doesn't really matter and loses sight on the only thing that does truly matter. Namely, Jesus the Messiah and him crucified. And so to guard us from this kind of temptation, the, the Apostle Paul rounds out his discussion by pointing out two correctives. And he says that the, the, the key idea for this evening is that a, a life that is centered on Messiah must be centered on the Messiah, not his followers, and must be centered on the power of God, not the persuasiveness of others. And so the first point, the first corrective is that we must be centered on the Messiah, not his followers. And so as I mentioned earlier, up to this point, Paul has made two intricate arguments for why divisions are antithetical to the cross of Jesus. He first demonstrates the foolishness of the cross in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And then secondly, he demonstrates the foolishness of the people saved by the cross in chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. And finally, in our passage, Paul makes his last argument by demonstrating the foolishness of his own example. So take a look at verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now to understand this verse, we have to understand what Paul was originally we have to understand that Paul was originally the guy that started the Corinthian church in Corinth of all places. And we don't have time to look at the passage, so I'll just summarize it for us. But in Acts chapter 18, uh, that chapter outlines the beginnings of the Corinthian church. And, and so Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that Paul arrived in Corinth. Again, the, the, the religious and socioeconomic melting pot, the, the LA or the San Francisco of the Roman Empire. And he tells us that Paul had partnered up with a couple named Priscilla and Aquila and just did groundwork gospel ministry. Okay. And he went to synagogues and he talked with people about Jesus and the good news of his kingdom. He met with people individually and he met with families. And eventually, through his ministry, through meeting with people, Luke tells us that many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Which, as a side note, tells you a little bit about the tight connection between profession of faith in Jesus and baptism as the public acknowledgement of your profession. But I digress. But Paul birthed the Corinthian church, which is completely surprising when you read a verse like verse 1. Because notice again what Paul says in verse 1. He says that when he came to the Corinthians, he did not come proclaiming with lofty speech or wisdom. 
And in, in verses 3 to 4, he says that he was with them in weakness and in fear and much trembling and his speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom. And this is surprising because we have to remember what kind of people the Corinthians were and what kind of, synth, what kind of city the Corinthians lived in. Of all the places they lived, of all the places they lived in Corinth, they were Corinthians. For a city whose residents had made boasting in art form, you would expect Paul to appeal to those kinds of sensibilities. After all, like didn't Paul just, didn't Paul say that you should be all things to all people? You would expect Paul to be all hype and he could have. We know that Paul was an incredibly intelligent guy studying under people like Gamaliel, the leading authority in the Jewish council. He had possessed a formidable presence as a persecutor of the church. So it's not that Paul couldn't and wasn't charming or all hype or intelligent or wise. But Paul didn't use any of those status markers to leverage his role as an apostle. He came with no bells and whistles. He came with no light shows or fog machines. He came with no ripped jeans or fancy Fortnite dance moves. He came with no miraculous gifts, something that we'll talk about later in the passage. He came with no posse. He just came with a simple message. Take a look at verse 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The reason why Paul deliberately cast aside any hype, any rhetorical ability, any status, any charisma was because he wanted to do nothing that would attract others to himself. Because in attracting a bunch of followers to himself, it would ultimately distract people away from the individual who truly mattered. Jesus and Jesus crucified. I know that some of you here I know that there are some of you here who possess a lot of influence. Uh, maybe you're the person that people will turn, will, will turn to for help. Maybe you are a leader on your campus. Maybe other people see you as the leader in your friend group. Uh, your greatest temptation isn't being afraid of using it. Rather, your greatest temptation is not being afraid of using it. The greatest temptation for anyone holding any kind of influence, whether at school, at church, at home, is the misuse of influence. Where you will use influence in such a way to draw attention to yourself and ultimately distract people from Jesus. Paul had an incredible amount of influence. But in no way did he throw his influence around because he knew that in doing so, it would take people's eyes off Jesus. And I know that there are some of you here who are naturally maybe gifted communicators. Maybe you are the one person that people will turn to when they need some convincing. Maybe you are the kind of person who can argue your way out of arguments with either your parents or your friends. Maybe you are, maybe you have a way with words and do really well in English or whatever. Maybe some of you are on speech and debate, which I think is a little hard for me to imagine for any of you guys to be in, uh, but surprise me. Um, but the greatest temptation for anyone who is a gifted communicator 
is to use your words and the way you speak to manipulate others in such a way that twists the words of Jesus so that the people that so that people are most likely to, to trust your word than his. Or to use your words in such a way that draws more attention to yourself than Jesus. And I can go on and on and on. But Paul's life and example to the Corinthians here shows us how to steward influence and status well. If you possess any of those things that I had just listed, influence, rhetoric, if you possess intellect, even humor, those are things that God gives us to take care of and to steward. And I think some of you guys uh, know this already, but I used to live in Pastor David's backyard for three years, and, and now that space is taken over by Jenna Tomita. But Pastor David and Jamie were, were very generous and um, super kind to allow me to invade their space for those three years. And occasionally, when, when David and Jamie and the kids left their house, they had left it up to me to take care of their house. Uh, to make sure that their house wasn't burning down or anything, uh, which meant that I couldn't, you know, invite people over uh, for dinner or, or, you know, like light fireworks in the backyard or whatever. Um, it wasn't my house. The point of the steward is that it's not about the steward, but who the steward is stewarding for. Paul recognized that as a messenger of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, and that as a steward of Jesus, it meant that the status that he possessed, the influence that he owned, the intellect that he had nurtured, really was not his own. It was not about him, but Jesus. Last year when, when VBS was right around the corner, Pastor Wayne had, uh, uh, he, was, he was preparing a little talk for our junior hires on how to serve well in VBS. And he had asked some of the pastors if they had any input or suggestions, suggestions on what to say. And, and Pastor David, again, he's just coming up over and over again in my message. He had written one suggestion that was so simple, so mundane, so often forgotten, and yet so true. He, he wrote, it's not about you. And he, he copied and pasted that in his email. He just, he just said, it's not about you, it's not about you, it's not about you, it's not about you. It's just like a huge block text. Paul made sure that his life, his eloquence, his gifting, his abilities, his, his preaching, his influence were no stumbling block to Jesus because it was not about him. Paul's job was to simply get out of Jesus' way so that it is Jesus alone whom we turn our gaze to. How about for us? What does it mean for us to get out of the way and not be a stumbling block to Jesus? What does it mean for us to not stumble others and be a distraction for others? And I want to point us, point us to two specific areas of application that goes back to the idea of stewardship. The first is stewarding influence means using influence in the service of others. Using influence in the service of others. What we need to understand is that influence, communication, Humor, even, and intellect are exactly what they are. They are gifts from God, given by the giver, who is the par excellence model of influence used in the blessing and service of others. In other words, influence, speech, wisdom, power, even, 
aren't given to benefit those who carry it. It is given for the flourishing of others and the world itself. It is given to help those who do not have influence. It's given to those to help the disenfranchised, the people who have no natural ability to rely on themselves. Which means that influence is not the opposite of servanthood. In making sure that others would flourish, the very purpose of influence is actually servanthood. If you possess influence, the crucifixion of Jesus demonstrates that it's precisely those who are in influential positions who must use it in the service of others. If you do not use your influence to service others, to serve others, you are a stumbling block to Jesus. If you do not do anything about your influence, you are a stumbling block to Jesus. And you are distracting others from him. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, in the parable of the rich fool, Jesus points out that those who have been given much, much is required of them. So I want you guys to take stock of what you have. Maybe you have a lot of gifting, maybe a lot of ability, maybe a lot of wisdom, a lot of intellect, maybe a lot of knowledge. God personally holds you accountable for the things that he has given to you for the service of his kingdom and others. As the Apostle Paul will write in chapter 6, your life is not your own. For you have been bought with a price. And as a steward, what you have, your your body, your your intellect, your skills, your abilities, your, your your family, your relationships, your friends, your phone, all of it, it's not about you. And it's not your own. And I want to also talk briefly to those who are in lesser positions of influence or people who have no influence whatsoever but desperately desire it. Let me tell you something. If you live for the approval or the esteem or the status or whatever of others, if you live for the approval of others, you have to also realize that if you live for the approval and praise of others, then you will also die by their criticism and disapproval. That is something that you have to reckon with if this is something that you desire and pursue. And so desire, influence, and approval, but desire it at your own peril. Secondly, the second way to steward influence is to sacrifice influence in the service of Jesus. Sacrifice influence in the service of Jesus. When Paul says that he did not come to the Corinthians with lofty speech or wisdom, Paul made a deliberate and calculated decision to not use it even when he could have. And this tells us that sometimes in view of the, even the good things that God gives us to use, sometimes following Jesus will lead us to a path of self-denial of those very same things. Why? Well, later in chapter 8, Paul will say that even though he knows that Christians can eat food offered to idols, If food offered to idols is what will cause others to stumble, then he will never eat food offered to idols. And the point that Paul is making here is that if there are Christian freedoms that others might be offended by, even if we know that they're nothing more than freedoms, 
We must be willing to pay the price so that others don't sin against Jesus and so that their, uh, their conscience is not seared. He writes, For if anyone sees you who have acknowledged eating in a temple's idol, or uh, an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And that's pretty intense. But this was how Paul understood influence, power, and knowledge. If you have those things, you need to use it for the service of others and sometimes sacrifice it for the service of Jesus. Stewarding influence will sometimes mean even giving up good things, rights, and privileges, just as Jesus did in the service of Jesus' kingdom and others. And so stewarding influence will therefore require asking the question, are we distracting people from Jesus by how much we know or by how articulate we are or by how charming we are? Sacrificing influence will then mean a reevaluation of what is truly important. If our God-given intellect is what will get in the way of Jesus, then we must and we will have to die to intellectual vanity. If our God-given speech is what will get in the way of Jesus, then we will take up our cross and die to flashiness, to flashiness of speech. To, to follow Jesus is to regularly come to the end of yourself with the honest realization that to follow him means that you follow no one else except Jesus and him crucified. Because it's not about you. Now, this is a completely ironic illustration, but I was, uh, I was reading a biography of John Calvin. <laughs> and the biographer had written this about John Calvin's funeral. He wrote, Calvin had given definite instructions for his funeral. Nothing must distinguish it from any other citizen. His body was to be sewed into a white shroud. I don't know why he did that. And laid in a simple pine coffin. And at the grave, there were to be neither words nor song. The wishes of the deceased were scrupulously carried out, but although in accordance with his will, all pomp was avoided, an unnumbered multitude followed the coffin to the cemetery with deep respect and silent grief. He who was averse to all ambition did not even want a tombstone. Just a few months later, when foreign students desired to visit the place where the reformer's earthly remains rest, the place could no longer be pointed out among the fresh mounds. The point that he was trying to make was, why do we need a grave of John Calvin when we have John Calvin's God, whom we love, whom he loved and served? Why do we need to follow influential people when we have the God who created them? Why do we follow certain individuals in the church when we have the God whom they follow? Why do we need to follow messengers when we have the Messiah himself? You know that um, Hawaiian Christian brand, He is Greater Than I? It's actually the sermon title, the message. 
It's obviously a great message, but I think it's created an unfortunate following. I see it plastered on people's cars. Some of you are even wearing some kind of he is greater than I clothing. Like it's the cool Christian thing to do. But lest we forget, Christian, lest we forget, Christianity is not a lifestyle brand. In fact, it's neither a lifestyle nor a brand. Christianity is about Christ and Christ crucified, whose followers must follow suit. Which means that Christianity is not a fan club filled with the most good-looking or fashion-forward, brightest or smartest group of individuals. Jesus is not looking for fans who will only admire him from afar and will wear a couple of He is Greater Than I t-shirts. He is looking for followers who will take up their crosses and die a million daily deaths. Dying to self. Dying to ego. Dying to the approval of others. Dying to even good things. All of which are foolish to the world. So that in those deaths, you may truly find life in the Messiah who died for you. But before I hate too much, and as, I, as much as I despise that he is greater than I brand, I believe that their message is actually the whole essence of Christianity. He must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. This was the Pauline vision of Jesus that marked out and consumed his entire life and his entire way of living. And it is this kind of vision of Jesus that Paul, that makes Paul say what he does, what he says in verse two. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul loved Jesus the Messiah. The son of God who loved him and gave himself up for him. You cannot find a more Messiah-centered individual. One commentator writes that Paul's reminiscence that he resolved to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified does not promote anti-intellectualism, but explains his modus operandi. In other words, it wasn't so much that Paul hated the rhetoric or the wisdom or the gifts or that Jesus was literally the only thing that he thought about, but that everything else was secondary in importance. Everything just paled in comparison because the center of Paul's life was Jesus, the Messiah. There was no one figure in his life more central to his understanding of himself, his his worship, his lifestyle, his world, and his mission. If Jesus be central, if Jesus is to be, let's hope that my nose isn't bleeding. It's not, okay. just to, to the relief of myself and also you guys. Um, if Jesus is central, if Jesus is to be central in your life, if Jesus is to lay claim of your whole heart, your whole body, your whole giftings, your whole life, everything else in your life must be decentralized and everything else must be reevaluated in relation to Jesus and Jesus crucified. This is the heartbeat of what a life centered on Messiah is. And so a question that I want to ask all of you high schoolers, all of you staff, what is your MO 
in life? What is your life all about? You see, that the, the problem isn't that we have a lot of things going on in our lives, like soccer practice or SATs, friendships, relationships. The problem is that most likely in the pursuit of all these different things, Jesus has been decentralized and decrowned from the throne of your life. And when you decentralize Jesus, we don't understand the consequences. When you decentralize Jesus, you dismantle the very thing that unites and keeps this high school group together. What does it mean for a group of high school, high, high, high school students like you guys to decide to, to decide to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified? It means that whatever else we know, whatever else we say, whatever else we do must be known, said, and done in relation to Messiah crucified. That is the cruciform way, a life that is shaped by the cross. Where through the cross, Jesus is increased and we decrease. The cross of Jesus the Messiah is not a relic of the distant past. The cross of Jesus is the center of our everyday relationships and friendships. And what this means is that we serve others in love in the shadow of the cross. We love others in the face of wrong and evil in the shadow of the cross. We use our gifts and abilities in the shadow of the cross. We leverage our influence for the benefit of others in the shadow of the cross. We do our homework in the shadow of the cross. We eat and drink in the shadow of the cross. And we do all this because of Jesus and Jesus crucified. A question I want to ask all of you guys is, were the people in this room crucified for you? Were the people that you're sitting next to crucified for you? Were your pastors crucified for you? No. It is Jesus who was crucified for you. We must be centered on the Messiah, not his followers. Point number two. We must be centered on the power of God, not the persuasiveness of others. All right, well, I'm running out of time, and we have three more verses to cover. So I need to make this quick and snappy. Okay, take a look at verses three to four. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, when you read these two verses, we stumble upon a seeming contradiction. If you look at verse 3, Paul says, I came to you in weakness and in fear. But in verse 4, he says, my message was in, was in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And the contradiction here is that but by referring to signs and wonders of the spirit, doesn't Paul run the risk of appealing to the very criteria that he has tried to avoid appealing to? What is the demonstration of the spirit and of power? Well, every commentator virtually says that the demonstration of the Spirit and of power refers to the very fact that the lives of the Corinthians have been changed. In other words, the demonstration of the Spirit and of power refers to something that is often overlooked because it's so mundane and so taken for granted. 
The demonstration of the Spirit and of power is the very fact that you are a Christian. The most visible demonstration of the power and Spirit of our God in our time today, more than healings, more than speaking in tongues, more than miracles, is the fact that God is saving people by His grace and changing their hearts and their lives. That is the greatest miracle. Turning people from their idols to serve the true and living God. The strongest argument for Christianity are the people whom God saves. Not because of how great or worthy the people are, but because of how unworthy and undeserving we are and how great a savior God is in rescuing people who were lost in their darkness and sins and transferring them into the, into the kingdom of his beloved son. And I think a lot of us are surprised by that. So many of us are convinced that if we were just more eloquent, more gifted, more intelligent, we can convince others to believe in Jesus. And if, and if only, and how if only our pastors talk to this person, then this person will be saved and this other person will be saved. But, con- but conversion, the conversion of souls has never been about personality or gifting. It has always been about mercy and grace. Conversion is never about how God uses your greatness, but how God uses you in spite of your weaknesses. And I think that's the reason why God sometimes removes his most gifted servants. Just a month ago, the pastors on staff had found out that Dr. David Pallison uh, was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And I know that Dr. Pallison means nothing to you guys, or at least most of you guys. And, but when you hear, when you have stage four pancreatic cancer, you're pretty much a goner. Okay. Like he's going to die soon. Now, David Pallison in many ways is the reason why we have a counseling ministry in our church. If you want to know why we talk about counseling so much, just blame it on that guy. Okay. So many of the pastors and myself have been deeply influenced and, and shaped by his writings wisdom, his, his biblical insight, and, and through our preaching and teaching, you all and the church as a whole have been a beneficiary, beneficiary to some degree or another of his practical wisdom. And so when we found out that he was going to die, all of us were like, oh shoot, like what do we do? Like this guy is the father of modern biblical counseling. Like where are we going to get our sermon application from? Where is, where is Tim going to get his wisdom from? <laughs> and then I began studying this passage. Perhaps sometimes God removes his most admired servants so that we will not make idols of them as though they are the only means of God's help and grace. And perhaps God deliberately displays his might and strength through more ordinary and even weaker vessels so that we will not be fixed on the flashiness of God's servants, but on the strength of God's arm. Take a look at verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, what the, what the value system of the world tries to convince us of is in order to make the cross of Jesus credible to others, you must be good looking. You, you need to be smart. Uh, you need to be, you know, philosophically adept. You must be articulate. You must be extroverted. You must be in, in the in crowd. But in the past, but in this passage, Paul points us to a different path of credibility. 
Your faith. Your faith. In fact, the Apostle John writes that the victory that overcomes the world is our faith. How? We have to realize something here. Realize something here. It's because in faith, we are not trusting in our own eloquence, our own wisdom, our own power, but in the God who can change lives, just as he had done with our own lives. God's powerful presence is manifested in the lives of faithful, ordinary, loving Christians. Paul wasn't credible because he was persuasive. Paul was credible because he loved Jesus. You want to to know how you can be credible to other people? Do you love Jesus? Do you want to live for him? And does that shape how you live? How he lived his life before God and others was completely shaped by Jesus. And I think sometimes we forget the simple yet powerful testimony of a faithful, Jesus-loving Christian. It is when Christians faithfully love and serve others. It is when Christians die to their own selfishness. It is when Christians look to the cross. These are the kinds of people that we need to be surrounding ourselves with, and these are the kinds of people that we need to be striving to be. And this is what will tear this high school group apart. When we center on the personality of others, even though we have the arm and strength of God. He must increase and we must decrease. When the church lives like this in the world, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the church is set up as a new way of being human so that the path of the crucified Messiah paves a path full of promise and hope in a world that desperately needs God's power. A life that is centered on Messiah must be, must be centered on the Messiah, not his followers, and must be centered on the power of God, not the persuasiveness of others. Let's pray. Lord, you must increase, and every single one of us must decrease. And God, I pray that you would make that a reality not just in our heads, because I know that it's easy for that to just sit in our heads. But God, we pray that you would make that trickle down to our hearts. You must increase and we must decrease. We ask all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you guys.